another quarantine episode of evidence-based radio as always you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com well we are off to an extremely bumpy start to the new year i am still trying to process my anger about what happened on tuesday afternoon in the nation's capital I have to say, I was neither shocked nor surprised, just angry, because there has been no action more starkly representative of the white supremacist core of this country. The Capitol was not more secure because despite knowing that there were people planning violence, no one could quite bring themselves to believe that a group of white people would behave in a way that is otherwise expected of black and brown people. We live in a country that is deeply divided and I find it harder every day to find any kind of will to reconcile with people who fail to completely disavow the actions and actors in this week's attempted insurrection, because that's what it was. And what's even worse is that this insurrection attempt happened in the middle of a pandemic. COVID-19 is surging around the country in ways not seen before, even at the beginning of the outbreak. And the idea of a large group of people from all over the country, most of whom refuse to wear masks, congregating together in small spaces is a recipe for disaster. Thousands of people were standing cheek by jowl for hours as the day proceeded. People were even being encouraged to hug each other and to flaunt public health measures. It's a horrible thing to think that we would be here as the World Health Organization saying to people, don't hug each other. Michael Ryan, executive director of the WHO's emergency program, said in a press briefing just last month, it's terrible but that is the brutal reality in places like the United States right now. And within the walls of Congress, Democratic lawmakers had to fear not only the mob, but also their fellow lawmakers. Representative Susan Wilde, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, told CBS News that she'd been evacuated to a safe room, but that it was packed with 300 to 400 other evacuees. It's what I would call a COVID super spreader event, Wilde said. About half the people in the room are not wearing masks, even though they've been offered surgical masks. They've refused to wear them. She identified the anti-mask members as people from the Republican delegation. Some of the newer members that are freshmen this year are openly flaunting that they will not wear a mask and refusing to put a mask on. It's exactly the kind of situation that we've been told by the medical doctors not to be in. Several members have now announced that they were actually infected, including Democratic members who directly blame their colleagues for this status. Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman, a Democrat from New Jersey and a cancer survivor. Representative Pramila Jayapal, 
a Democrat from Washington, and Representative Brad Schneider, a Democrat from Illinois, have all tested positive. Schneider has been avoiding going home because his wife has a medical problem, and he is worried about infecting her. Too many Republicans have refused to take this pandemic and virus seriously, and in doing so, they ingent they endanger everyone around them. Only hours after President Trump incited a deadly insult on our capital, our country, and our democracy, many Republicans still refuse to take the bare minimum COVID-19 precaution and simply wear a damn mask in a crowded room during a pandemic, creating a super spreader event on top of a domestic terrorist attack, Jayapal said in a statement. Schneider noted that Wearing a mask is not a political statement. It is a public health guidance, common courtesy, and simply what should be expected of all decent people. And I cannot agree more. The fact that these Congress members became infected also shows another important thing, which is the problems with the vaccine rollout. Not only has that been a disaster just in general, but the problem is, is that I fear that a lot of people will believe that once they get a vaccine, they're safe. However, once you receive the vaccine, it takes time for your system to develop immunity. These members of Congress had had been vaccinated with their first dose within um, a couple of them had had it just a few days before, but one even had had it. Um, around a week before. Now, these members of Congress did not have the ability to be protected from transmission. And so when you are eventually able to get your doses of the vaccine, uh, you should not let your regimen of mask wearing and social distancing change at all, even though I know you'll feel tempted. You'll need to wait until especially after the second dose, and even then you should still wait two weeks before you start considering yourself protected. Even then, you really should continue to wear a mask and social distance until health authorities suggest that we can actually relax our vigilance as the virus has only shown to have a 95% efficiency rate, which sounds really great, but you still run a slight risk of infection. Okay, so we're going to talk about COVID-19 for a little while longer, and then we were going to switch to uh, stories about animals. So a little bit nicer, even though some of them are also uh, have a twinge of sadness to them. So we're going to talk now about the controversy surrounding the WHO delegation to China in order to investigate the origins of the virus. Two scientists have been stopped in Singapore but the rest of the team has finally made it to Wuhan. 13 of the scientists who had repeatedly tested negative for the coronavirus in their home nations have finally been admitted, but the two researchers in Singapore tested positive for antibodies when they arrived. Subsequent negative PCR tests indicate that they do not have the disease, but they are still being held up. Now, this may seem reasonable, but it is just the latest in a long line of ways in which China has tried to delay this mission. China has already dismissed requests from Australia, the U.S., and others 
who wished to send in independent investigators to study the origin of the COVID-19 virus. Two World Health Organization investigators were allowed to the country in July for three weeks, but in that entire time, they were never allowed by their Chinese handlers to actually visit Wuhan, where the virus almost certainly originated. Now, some believe that China is worried about reigniting rumors that the virus was from an escaped, was an escapee from a lab, or simply the fact that they don't want to admit that the virus originated in China. Now, this is the escapee from a lab uh, situation is almost certainly not the origin, and no serious person really believes that. Everyone believes, for the most part, that the virus jumped from an animal host to humans. And this is the avenue being pursued by the investigators. And so after another two-week quarantine mandated by the government, they will be begin to interview members of research institutes, hospitals, and the seafood market where the outbreak is thought to have originated. Team leader Peter Ben Emberick told AFP news agency just before the trip that it could be a very long journey before we get to a full understanding of what happened. I don't think we will have clear answers after this initial mission, but we will be on the way, he said. But again, unfortunately, this will all be under the strict monitoring of Chinese authorities and this comes just as a new campaign has been launched, which suggests that the virus didn't originate in the country at all, uh, in a country where a new outbreak is actually raging in the north, uh, mainly in Hebei province or Hubei province. Um, and so the new campaign or propaganda uh, campaign suggests that the virus originated in Spain, Italy, or the U.S., before it arrived in China, despite all of the evidence to the contrary. And so we are definitely fighting an, an uphill battle here in order to really figure out what happened with the coronavirus. And it's very frustrating because clearly these scientists aren't looking to assign, assign blame. They really just want to be able to study the origins of the virus. And so all of these blockages have been very, very frustrating. Okay, like I said, one more story about COVID and then we'll move on. Though this one did uh, both make me happy and angry. Um, one of the developers of a COVID-19 vaccine has now been awarded the 2020 Screlly Award, which just warms my heart that someone has made these awards. And it is, of course, named after our least favorite ex-pharma bro or pharmaceutical executive, Martin Screlly, who is currently in prison for fraud unrelated to his price gouging of a drug needed by patients with AIDS and other serious illnesses. And so this award has been bestowed upon Moderna who won the 2020 award for having taken a billion dollars from the federal government in order to develop the vaccine and then tried to set the price at 64 to $74 per person for the two-dose regimen. 
Now, this may not seem too steep until you know that the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is set to be available for $39, and the Johnson & Johnson will debut at $20 for their two-dose regimen. Both of these companies developed vaccines without government funds. Moderna was eventually forced to lower the price to $30 for the two-dose regime, though again, the government funded the research that went into making the drug. The Loan Institute's judges wrote that, given the upfront investment by the U.S. government, we are essentially paying for the vaccine twice. And so the Loan Institute is a healthcare think tank and award judge Deborah Blum added, this is so blatantly greedy from a company that has no track record in producing vaccines and built its current one with taxpayer help. Blum is an award-winning science journalist and the director of the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. And in fact, Moderna has another entry in the awards as Dr. Elizabeth Nabel, CEO of Brigham and Women's Hospital and a member until recently of Moderna's board, also received a Screlly Award because she ha actually wrote an op-ed defending the high price while failing to disclose that she was a member of the board of Moderna at the time. She also received a bunch of, of stock options for being a member of the board and then sold them off after they nearly quadrupled at the time of the virus announcement. And so she directly profited from this turn of events. Now, she did resign from the board in July, clearly under a cloud of criticism. So, of course, we have to say, stay classy. All right. We are now going to leave COVID-19 in the rear view, uh, though obviously we need to keep thinking about it in our everyday lives, maintain our mask wearing and our social distancing and our hand washing and all of those things that keep us healthy. Um, because again, there are several strains that are present in the country right now, which are more infective or more easily um, spread than the original variants of the virus. And so um, there's also, uh, in addition to the one that was found in the UK, there's also one that has been found in Ohio that is now spreading quickly in Ohio. And again, none of these have been shown to be more fatal, but the more people infected, the more that hospitals are strained and the more that people can die as a subsequent consequence of a lack of health care. And in fact, there's actually some concern that the record that we have had for several years now of declining death rates from cancer will actually not manifest this year because so much of the healthcare infrastructure has been devoted to COVID that there's actually some worry that cancer patients will not have received the proper treatments that they should have done. And in fact, we know this is the case in some places. And so 
the death toll from cancer will actually go up this year as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. All right, but again, we're going to move on. I forgot, we're going to talk about space for a bit, and then we'll move on to animals. So we're going to start with what is pretty much a uh, almost completely uh, happy set of topics about all the new things that are coming up in the coming year, um, at least the highlights. And so NASA continues to knock it out of the ballpark with its missions, both the Juno spacecraft in orbit around Jupiter and the InSight lander on Mars have been given an extension to their missions by an external review. The senior review has validated that these two planetary science missions are likely to continue to bring new discoveries and produce new questions about our solar system, Lori Glaze, director of NASA's Planetary Science Division said in the statement. Now, this decision isn't really a surprise, but it is still exciting nonetheless. Now, Juno has given us what are pretty much the most beautiful and detailed photos of Jupiter's um, atmosphere and its surface, I should say. Um, and if you have not looked at the uh, pictures from uh, the Juno uh, orbiter, you you don't know what you're missing. I'm serious. The images are literally breathtaking. Um, the detail and just all of the the massive swirls and the it's just it's incredibly beautiful and incredibly detailed, which gives us lots of great information about what's going on in uh, Jupiter's atmosphere. And so, again, it has made important inroads into our understanding of that atmosphere beyond just the pictures and also the interior structure, which apparently includes things like shallow lightning and mushy hail. And it's also given us information about the magnetosphere. So it's doing good work. And so the extension will give the mission a new timeline through at least 2025, as long as it continues to function. And it will allow it to explore Jupiter's rings, because it does have rings, uh, as well as the moons Io, Ganymede, and Europa, which, of course, might be one of the potential places to harbor life in our solar system in its oceans. And of course, this is a great reprieve because the craft was otherwise scheduled to be crashed into Jupiter later this year in order to prevent any possible contamination of Jupiter's moons. And I think that I actually reported on that. So it's very exciting that they have scuttled that plan and are going to extend the mission. And the InSight uh, lander on Mars will continue to study the Martian landscape until at least December of 2022. And so the new mission will focus more on monitoring tectonic activity. Unfortunately, there is one piece of bad news. As of today, Friday the 15th, NASA has officially given up on the struggle to deploy the mole. We've given it everything we've got, but Mars and our heroic mole remain incompatible, said Tillman Spahn, principal investigator for the Heat, Flow, and Physical Properties Package mission in a NASA statement. Unfortunately, we've learned a lot, fortunately, we've learned a lot that will benefit future missions that attempt to dig into the subsurface. So, you know, it wasn't all a waste. 
uh, much valuable data has been collected on how future missions might tackle the problems of the variable Martian subsurface. So if you remember, they thought that it would be just kind of sandy uh, soil that they would be able to uh, use a um, friction driller on, but it turned out that it was a more kind of concretey uh, substance that was too hard and didn't work against the mole and actually resisted the mole, popped it out of its hole at one point, and it just, it didn't work. Um, and so that regolith uh, structure was just not compatible with the kind of friction um, drilling that the mole was supposed to be able to um, produce. And so in addition, the InSight lander, along with the rover Curiosity, which is still doing good work, will be joined on February 18th by Perseverance, set to land in the Jezero Crater, which is the site of a former lake and river delta. Now, hopefully it will survive what uh, the NASA scientists are calling the seven minutes of terror, where it will need to deploy a parachute to slow its descent once it breaches the atmosphere. Uh, it will then need to pop the bottom off of the heat shield. A second stage will be deployed and using retro rockets, it will further slow its descent in order to drop off the lander. Um, and then that stage with the retro rockets will actually uh, move off and continue to on in order to drop outside of the landing area of the rover so that it doesn't damage the rover itself. And then, of course, the rover will have to deploy all of its um, pieces of equipment. But if all goes well, and hopefully it will, uh, the rover will be looking for signs of microbial life, will study the weather and geology, and collect samples that are expected to be collected by a future mission. And it will also, as we've talked about uh, before, deploy Ingenuity, the tiny proof-of-concept helicopter. Now, NASA's not the only one who's having fun in space. Both the United Arab Emirates and China are also hoping to successfully land missions on Mars in February. There's plenty of planet to go around. There's also good evidence that the long-delayed James Webb Space Telescope will launch at the end of the year. Now, of course, it's been subject to all sorts of uh, production delays, uh, cost overruns, and all sorts of uh, those things that you just don't want to be associated with a successful mission. But we have plugged along and it's looking good at this point. And so if all goes well, the web will be really, I mean, that's the thing. It's an amazing next generation telescope that will provide astronomers with unprecedented views and data about the universe. And so it's just, you know, the reason that people keep talking about it is because it's much more advanced than the Hubble was. And so if we can get it out there, it's going to be amazing. And also uh, due to launch in July is NASA's DART mission or double asteroid redirection test. And so it will begin its journey to the double asteroid Didymus in 2022. 
The mission will aim to strike the smaller of the two asteroids in the double asteroid uh, system in order to see if we can affect its trajectory. The mission will include international partners with Italy sending a secondary spacecraft built um, in order to hopefully record the impact and a European spacecraft, um, European Space Agency uh, craft Hera will be sent after those first two to see if the asteroid's trajectory was actually affected. And so NASA is also hoping to launch the Lucy probe, which will spend a dozen years on the trail of seven different asteroids in the main belt and Jupiter's orbit, which may reveal more information about planetary formation and how the pieces of these rocks that are left over from the formations of planets, how they would have come together. And again, these are just some of the highlights uh, with what NASA and space agencies from countries across the world are doing and continuing to make significant breakthroughs in the realm of space exploration and data collection. So pretty exciting stuff coming up. All right, we are going to take a break. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Uh, stay tuned after the uh, break for some PSAs and show promos. And like I said, when we come back, we will spend the rest of the show talking about the animal kingdom. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, 
in the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back, and you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as promised, we're going to move on to the animal kingdom. But I hope that you will indulge me by starting off with a story that is frankly kind of petty. Um, It happened back in 2018. I never talked about it, but it seemed appropriate for tonight's episode. So we're going to dig into the story of a blind, ground-burrowing, worm-like amphibian, which was named after our soon-to-be-unemployed president. Dermaphis Donald Trumpii is a member of the Sicilians group, which are limbless amphibians found in the tropics. The amphibian was one of 12 unnamed species from Latin America that had their naming rights auctioned off at a fundraiser for the Rainforest Trust back in December of 2018. EnviroBuild, a UK company that supplies sustainable building materials, paid $25,000 for the privilege of naming the worm-like amphibian after the blindness of Donald Trump on the topic of climate change. The company noted that the blindness, that the blindness, Sicilians have rudimentary eyes that can only distinguish light and dark, relates to Trump's blindness towards anthropomorphic climate change. The limbless creature also burrows deep into the earth, metaphorically burying themselves in the sand, as Trump has with the consensus on climate change, and they have have another unique feature. The creatures practice dermatotrophy, dermatrophy, In order to take care of their young, they grow an extra layer of skin, which allows their young to then eat that skin and grow. And of course, this is a nod to the fact that Trump's children feed off his money and power. Now, the company chose the name for a reason, not just to be petty. While the story is, itself is lighthearted, and Viral Build are really aiming to push forward an important message. With climate change only accelerating, legislation still isn't doing enough to apply the brakes. This means the only option is to create new avenues ourselves, company representatives wrote. And so, yeah, that does warm my heart today uh, to think about a little uh, limbless amphibian burrowing in the ground named after the president. 
soon-to-be former president, I should say. Okay, let's once again turn to the majestic and weird duck-billed platypus. This seems to be the platypus's week, uh, or month, I should say, or uh, quarter. <laughs> and so uh, I reported a couple weeks ago that they have found that the fur of the platypus is biofluorescent. And now researchers have reviewed the monotreme's genome and found even more interesting and odd uh, information. And so the international team of 40 researchers from Australia, China, Japan, Denmark, and the United States actually looked at the DNA of both platypuses and echidnas. And I know we've talked a lot about the platypus, but echidnas are incredibly adorable and they really do deserve more press. Um, if you haven't looked at pictures of echidnas, you should go and look at pictures of echidnas. Um, one of the stories that I looked at had a picture where there was an echidna climbing on a um, camera and it was just precious. Anyways, <laughs> comparing the DNA of monotremes to those of chickens, rats, Tasmanian devils, and lizards, they found that the monotremes are halfway between oviparity and viviparity, or halfway between animals that incubate their embryos within the body or incubate their embryos using an egg. And so this was shown in the animal's protein dependencies. During their short in-egg incubation, they have kept one of the three major egg proteins that is used to make the yolk in chickens, said Marilyn Renfrey, a zoologist at the University of Melbourne and co-author of the study in a press release. But after hatching, but after hatching both platypus and echidna have a complex milk-like other mammals to support their young during their long lactation. And so monotremes are a link between the different lineages of modern animals that helps show where different traits split off. Indeed, the platypus belongs to the mammalia class, but genetically it's a mixture of mammals, birds, and reptiles, said Guo Zhi Zhang, a biologist at the University of Copenhagen and a co-author of the recent study. It has preserved many of its ancestors' original features, which probably contribute to its success in, an in adapting to the environment they live in. And so knowing more about these animals is critical at the moment because they are both threatened. The platypus has been especially uh, hard hit by the Australian brush fires from last year and has made tracking them difficult. And it also, though, um, beyond that gives us more information about how all sorts of mammals evolved. The complete genome has provided us with the answers on to how a few of the platypus's bizarre features emerged. At the same time, decoding the genome for platypus is important for improving our understanding of how other mammals evolved, including us humans. It holds the key as to why we and other urethria mammals evolved to become animals that give birth to live young instead of egg-laying animals, explains Zhang. And so humans have lost all three of the Phineologian genes, which are key to the production of egg yolk, while chickens retain all three. 
the platypus has lost two of these genes, and they did so around 130 million years ago, most likely because they developed milk production. In other mammals, Vitiligenin genes were replaced with casein genes that produce the casein protein found in mammalian milk. The platypus have casein genes as well. It informs us that milk production is an extant mammal species, and all extant mammal species has been developed through the same set of genes derived from a common ancestor which lived more than 170 million years ago, alongside the early dinosaurs in the Jurassic period, said Zhang. Now, the platypus is also toothless, which distinguishes it from other mammals, replacing teeth with two horn plates that it uses to mash food. The DNA research showed that they lost their teeth roughly 120 million years ago when they lost four of the eight genes responsible for tooth development. And just to round out the genetic oddities, the platypus and echidnas have 10 sex chromosomes. The new research suggests that in the ancestors of monotremes, the sex chromosomes were actually organized in a ring formation, which later splintered into an array of X and Y chromosomes. They found that the majority of these chromosomes found that the majority found in monotremes are more closely related to chickens than to humans, showing an evolutionary link between birds and mammals. So again, they are very weird but also fantastic little animals. Okay, let us move on now and talk about electric eels, which have been observed hunting in groups for the first time. Electric eels are actually three different species of giant South American knife fish, and they have the ability to shock prey with up to 860 volts of electricity, which they use both offensively and defensively. Now, they were assumed to be solitary hunters who lived in murky, slow rivers and basically just were only came together during uh, mating seasons. However, in 2012, Douglas Bastos, a researcher at the Instituto Nacional de Pesquisas de Amazonia in Manaus, Brazil, or the National Institute for Amazonian Fish, set out for the Iriri River in the Amazon Basin to catalog the area's diversity of fish species. He came across a small, a small lake connected to a river and found over 100 electric eels patrolling the waters. To his surprise, he documented a group of eels herding groups of small tetrafish into a tight ball, which several eels periodically periodically shocked in concert with one another. The tetras would jump out of the water and the eels would capture whatever they could, being either uh, paralyzed or actually killed by the shocks. This was, well, a shocking observation, according to David, uh, sorry, according to Carlos David de Santana, an ichthyologist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History and a senior author of the new study. Historically, we don't have any kind of information on electric eels living together, he noted. They were thought to live alone and maybe to and maybe congregate before the breeding season, but that was it. And not only was it a surprise because the eels were thought to be solitary, but of the tens of thousands of known species of fish, only nine are known to hunt in packs. 
However, one of the known species is the electric chisenbe fish of Africa. Though they only use their electric powers to locate prey in nightly hunting parties, rather than actually zapping the prey in order to be eaten. And so Bastos returned to the lake in 2014, watching and filming the eels for three full days, and again observed the group hunting behavior, which shows that this is a persistent strategy. Most of the day, the eels are quiet, resting in the deeper part of the lake, but at twilight, they emerge in a wheeling circle that closes in on schools of tetra and herds them into the shallows where the feasting begins. The eels take turns zapping the tetra and performing several rounds before resting. DeSantana hypothesizes that this behavior was, has not been seen in other areas because in the rainforest lowlands, the rivers are wide and there is lots of prey. But in the highlands where the eels live, where these eels live, prey is less abundant. Now, it's unclear at the moment whether the eels are actually communicating, though they may be doing this through low voltage discharges, which are often used for navigating and solo foraging. It's also unclear if the eels are related, and so future genetic sampling may help answer that question. And so far, the behavior has only been witnessed in the species Electrophorus volti, but DeSantis suspects it might also be a strategy of the other two species. As with most things, more research will be needed. However, this may be complicated by the fact that pools such as the one studied in 2012 and 2014 are becoming increasingly rare due to deforestation. And of course, that is a big problem in the Amazon. There is a ton of deforestation happening. Um, it's of course, contributing to climate change. Pretty much everything we do these days is contributing to climate change. Um, and uh, it's, it's very frustrating. And um, I don't know what the solution is, but I know that we definitely need to find one because we can't keep going on this way. We are going to do permanent damage to the planet and we are going to do permanent damage to a lot of species that were perfectly happy until uh, humans showed up in the landscape and destroyed their ecosystems. And so I think we need to be really mindful of that. Um, we have a lot of uh, making up to do. Okay, let's move on though and uh, talk about a story up north where there's actually a bit of reason to celebrate. And so for the second time in uh, the last year, footage of a wolverine has been captured on film in an unexpected place. This time the wolverine was seen speeding past a camera trap in Yellowstone, uh, in Yellowstone. The camera was actually set up to capture cougars, but for the first time since the cameras were deployed in 2014, a wolverine was spotted, as I said, racing past, and it was racing past. Now this is good news because wolverines are an important indicator species. 
Unfortunately, we're pretty sure that there are fewer than 300 left at the lower 48 at this point, but they are extremely elusive, so that number may vary a little bit. The animal was spotted near Mammoth Hot Springs, and this indicates that the area is healthy. The National Park Service estimates that within a 600 square mile radius of uh, very quality habitat, six individuals might thrive. But if you decrease the quality of the habitat, of the habitat, it goes down to simply 0.3 individuals because wolverines require a large amount of prey animals to satisfy their needs. And so seeing a wolverine means the area has ample prey, denning sites, and is mostly free from human activity since wolverines very smartly try to avoid humans in all possible uh, interactions. Of course, again, it's not all a rosy picture as climate change will make it increasingly hard for wolverines to survive. They need the snowpack in order to um, be able to have proper denning sites. And just in general, if you have climate change, you have prey changes, and it's just, it's not a good idea. And so we need to make sure that magnificent animals like these are not driven to extinction due to our greed and stupidity. Um, sorry, the theme this week is a bit of a downer, but, um, you know, it's been that kind of a week. Um, I'm sure that we will move on and things will get better. But um, yeah, this week is a little bit on the uh, melancholy side and I apologize for that. But let's let's move on and talk about dogs. Dogs are great. Dogs are, there's nothing sad about this story. Um, <laughs> there are currently two main theories that um, explain the domestication of dogs. First, that prehistoric man developed a relationship them, with them in order to do mutual hunting, or the dogs were attracted to our garbage minutes. New research suggests a third possibility, mostly because those other two aren't great, but also because obviously researchers are still looking into how to prove what actually happened. And so we know that dogs were domesticated from wild wolves between 14,000 and 29,000 years ago. They were actually the first animal to be domesticated, but their relationship has always been in question as humans and dogs are both pack hunters and would therefore have actually competed for the same prey. And so a new study suggests that it had to do with climate change at the end of the last ice age. The domestication of dogs has increased the success of both species to the point that dogs are now the most numerous carnivore on the planet, wrote the authors of a new study published in scientific reports. How this mutually beneficial relationship emerged, and especially how the potentially fierce competition between these two carnivores was ameliorated, needs to be explained. Maria Latinen, a chemist and archaeologist at the Finnish Food Authority in Finland, and the first author of the new study, notes. And so um, hunter-gatherers would not have had stationary garbage dumps and that inviting a wild predator into the midst of a human population would not have made sense. And so neither of those initial explanations really holds water. And so instead, 
Latinen and her colleagues believe that an abundance of protein during Ice Age winters reduced competition between the two species and thus allowed the two to live in symbiotic harmony and evolve together, eventually leading to today's wide variety of domestic dog species. The idea is that during the long winter months, humans could not subsist on meat alone, as that is detrimental to long-term health. Too much protein can lead to insulin resistance, excess ammonia in the body, diarrhea, and even death. Pleistocene hunters would have therefore focused on parts of the animal that were rich in fat, grease, and oils, and left the leaner meat parts available for sharing with pet wolves. Therefore, in the short term, over the critical winter months, wolves and humans would not have been in competition over resources and may have mutually benefited from each other's companionship, wrote the authors. This would have been critical in keeping the first proto-dogs for years and generations. And so Latinen suggests the first dogs may have been wolf pups, noting that modern hunter-gatherers do take pets in most cultures, and humans tend to find young animals cute. So it would not be a surprise if this would have happened. And so other symbiotic activities would have developed later, such as using dogs and hunting, uh, using them for guarding uh, and uh, for pulling sleds and other things that dogs were eventually uh, trained to take part in. And so the theory fits with the known complexity of the domestication of early dogs, which happened multiple times across Eurasia, with early dogs continuing to interbreed with wild wolves. It also accounts for why these domestication events occurred in Arctic and subarctic regions. And so in the summer months, the abundance of alternative sources of food would have allowed them to share as well because they wouldn't have been in direct competition. And so Latinen and her colleagues performed energy content calculations in order to determine the amount of energy that would be left over from prey animals also hunted by wolves such as deer, moose, and horses. They found that of all the species except for one, small ones like weasels, the amount of lean protein needed by humans would be exceeded and thus allow for sharing with canid companions. Therefore, the early domesticated wolves, wolves could have survived alongside human populations by consuming the excess protein from hunting that humans could not, explains James Cole, an archaeologist at the University of Brighton who was not involved with the new study. By having enough food for both populations, the competitive niche between the species is eliminated, therefore thereby paving the way to domestication and the benefits of such a relationship to the two species. So that sounds pretty reasonable. If you have a dog and you've got excess meat and you feed the dog, and then over time you are able to establish that relationship, I think that makes more sense. Um, I think that the arguments against the other explanations are pretty compelling. I think that there is definitely a lot of room to continue to explore just how this would have happened. Um, and it's really interesting because, of course, uh, dogs are such an integral part of modern human day-to-day uh, -day life for a lot of people. Obviously, there is the, the eternal uh, argument over cats, dogs, 
no pets, other kinds of pets. Um, as I've mentioned over the years, I am an equal opportunity pet person. I like all pets. Um, I have cats simply because they're kind of the easiest uh, animal to have when you want something that will cuddle with you. Um, obviously something like fish would be uh, potentially easier, but, um, and so, yeah, I think that dogs are very interesting in how they were domesticated. So this is a very cool study. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. So let's turn to a story about a pictorial representation of an animal. A pig painted on the wall of a cave in Indonesia has been dated to at least 43,900 years old, making it among, if not the oldest, figurative art example in history. And frankly, it's, it's quite good. It's clearly a large fur-covered pig found at the Liang Te Dongani. Um, I am so mispronouncing that and I apologize. Uh, cave site on Sulawesi Island, it depicts some sort of interaction between what was once three Sulawesi warty pigs, Sus celebensis, though two have been badly eroded. The third, though, is almost completely intact and again is quite good, actually. The species actually still inhabits the island and features short legs and a signature warty face. And so during the Pleistocene, they would have been an important prey animal, and the existence of this painting shows their importance to the people who inhabited the region. Um, and so basically a lot of people at this time, when they painted things on the walls, they were painting the animals that were important to them. Um, and of course, the other thing that they did, and that there are examples of right near this pig, is the handprint outlines, um, which are found everywhere and are so evocative. And so the team was led by Adam Brum and Maxine Aubert from Griffith University in Brisbane, Australia. And they actually also found a painting in a nearby cave, Liang Balangajia, dating to 32,000 years old. This is significant not only because these paintings are some of the oldest known ages for figurative artwork from anywhere in the world, but because this art represents the earliest evidence of anatomically modern humans in Sulawesi. Kira Westaway, an associate professor from the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at Macquarie University in Australia, who was not involved with the study, explained, Indonesia is known for having some of the world's oldest cave paintings, with Sulawesi having some 300 documented cave and rock shelters with depictions of animals and hand stencils. The oldest known hunting scene was discovered by the same team in the same area at the Liang Blues Saipong 4 cave site, showing human-like figures chasing warty pigs and buffaloes and dating to around the same time period as the new painting. Now, there is some question about whether or not this really is the oldest known work of representational art. Uh, there are cave paintings of animals, dots, geometric shapes, and hand stencils, likely created by Neanderthals some 64,000 years ago in um, 
Spain, but the authors claim that the Neanderthal art is non-figurative rock art whose dating has been vigorously contested. Now, obviously, other ar archaeologists disagree with this argument, but if nothing else, it's certainly the oldest painting in Sulawesi and the oldest evidence of anatomically modern humans on the island, and even possible the Wallachian region, according to the paper. The new painting was dated using uranium series isotope dating of mineral deposits found on the cave walls. The deposits provide a minimum age as they may have developed long after the scene was painted. In Indonesia, under, unlike other parts of the world, artwork is the primary evidence for the first inhabitants, unlike fossils and stone tools found in more temperate climates where preservation of these remains is more likely. They are also uniquely dateable. The art, usually incredibly challenging to date, has been painted on limestone rather than sandstone as seen elsewhere, so it's inherently dateable. Limestone enables the precipitation of spilimotherms, which are those mineral deposits, which can be reliably dated using uranium series dating techniques. As the art can so readily be constrained, this increases its significance and places a huge emphasis on building up a large body of evidence for the art in the region in lieu of other older evidence. And so the findings also suggest that modern humans were already capable of such represent representative artwork by the time that they emerged out of Africa some 60,000 years ago and had probably developed this they had, you know, developed this ability, but we haven't, we just haven't discovered any of that really old um, paintings yet. They probably have been destroyed over the years. The body of work by this team greatly contributes to our understanding of modern humans in this region, their abilities as artists, a typical modern trait, but also insights into their behaviors, lifestyles, and what they valued, said Westaway. So that's very exciting. And that is also all the time we have for tonight. So you have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio and have a good week. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.